coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. Oh, and look at here, we arrive at the weekend, and thank goodness for that, right? going on? My name is Ron. Thank you for listening to The Ron Show, whether it be on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. I appreciate you doing it. Thank you so much for tuning in. So the big news today is that Attorney General Merrick Garland has announced a special counsel for Hunter Biden. Good afternoon. I'm here today to announce the appointment of David Weiss as a special counsel consistent with the Department of Justice regulations governing such matters. All right, fine. Are you happy? In keeping with those regulations, I have today notified the designated members of each House of Congress of the appointment. In February 2018, after being nominated by the former President and confirmed by the Senate, Mr. Weiss was sworn in as the United States Attorney for the District of Delaware. Mr. Weiss had been a career prosecutor, having served previously in the office for more than a decade. Beginning in 2019, Mr. Weiss, in his capacity as U.S. Attorney and along with federal law enforcement partners, began investigating allegations of certain criminal conduct by, among others, Robert Hunter Biden. That investigation has been recently referenced in federal criminal proceedings in the District of Delaware, and as noted in those proceedings and other public statements by Mr. Weiss's office, that investigation remains ongoing. In February 2021, U.S. Attorney Weiss was asked to remain as U.S. Attorney for the District of Delaware and, in that capacity, to continue to lead the investigation. As I said before, Mr. Weiss would be permitted to continue his investigation, take any investigative steps he wanted, and make the decision whether to prosecute in any district. Mr. Weiss has told Congress that he has been granted ultimate authority over this matter including the responsibility for deciding where, when, and whether to file charges and for making decisions necessary to preserve the integrity of any prosecution consistent with federal law, the principles of federal prosecution, and departmental policies. In a July 2023 letter to Congress, Mr. Weiss said that he had not to that point requested special counsel designation. On Tuesday of this week, Mr. Weiss advised me that in his judgment, his investigation had reached a stage at which he could, should continue his work as a special counsel, and he asked to be so appointed. Upon considering his request, as well as the extraordinary circumstances relating to this matter, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint him as special counsel. This appointment confirms my commitment to provide Mr. Weiss all the resources he requests. It also reaffirms that Mr. Weiss has the authority he needs to conduct a thorough investigation and to continue to take the steps he deems appropriate independently. That is exactly what conservatives have been calling for for weeks now. Conservatives in Congress, conservatives behind microphones, in front of cameras, they've been calling for this for Quite a while now. And yet, in some cases, Clay Travis today went from, yes, this should have happened a long time ago, to an hour later, retweeting folks who were just aplomb with disgust that it's happened. And why, David Weiss? Isn't it just so devious, so politically devious, that somehow liberals 
wafted David Weiss before Donald Trump's eyes and forced Donald Trump, I guess through hypnosis, to appoint him a U.S. attorney back in 2017, confirmed in 2018. That is some next-level genius shit. am I right? Wow, guys, y'all are brilliant. I'm a little spooked by the deep state, because now you've even got Trump 2017 fooled. Good stuff, y'all. <laughs> it's just funny to watch as the pundits on the right go from, we need a special counsel, to, oh, this is a tactic. They're just trying to delay the House investigation. <laughs> Which is it, fellas? Clay Travis, uh, this morning, I want to say it was a, actually a little afternoon, Attorney General Merrick Garland announces a special counsel for Hunter Biden has been appointed. Should have happened a long time ago. Judge Narika is a hero. If she had agreed to the plea deal, this would have never happened. The heat on the Biden crime family is growing. But then about an hour later, <laughs> Clay Travis also retweets Congressman James Comer's statement. This move by A.G. Garland is part of the Justice Department's efforts to attempt a Biden family cover-up in light of GOP oversight's mounting evidence that they refuse to show anyone of President Biden's role in his family's scheme selling, quote, the brand for millions of dollars to foreign nationals. Clay Travis, who again, a little afternoon today, was saying, oh, thank goodness this should have happened a long time ago, uh, retweets or reposts a Kevin McCarthy tweet. This action by Biden's DOJ cannot be used to obstruct congressional investigations or whitewash the Biden family corruption. If Weiss, the U.S. attorney who, by the way, was appointed to the special counsel, uh, negotiated the sweetheart deal that couldn't get approved. And by the way, Weiss is a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney. Donald Trump appointed him. If Weiss negotiated the sweetheart deal that couldn't get approved, how can he be trusted as a special counsel? Kevin McCarthy tweets, House Republicans will continue to pursue the facts for the American people. Fine. Just show them. Show the evidence. Keep saying, You keep going to Fox News on primetime. <gasps> More evidence, y'all. We have more evidence. Oh, bank statements. Uh, you print them on poster card and put them on the easel like you do everything else. Um, okay, hang on. I, I actually want to get also to Eric Erickson because Eric Erickson has been breathlessly talking about how there needs to be a special counsel. Yeah, I think he did this on August 3rd. I think there was a tweet from Eric. Let me go back and find that for you. Hang tight. Here it is, August 3rd. It is long past time for Merrick Garland to appoint a special prosecutor to look into the Biden family corruption. That he won't is a sign no Republican attorney general should ever again appoint a special counsel to look into a Republican president. This must go both ways. Today it goes both ways. Eric Erickson, uh, around noon today. Just as the House GOP starts stringing all the ties together, the special counsel comes along and gets them to stop their investigation so he can investigate. Hmm. Guys. Make up your freaking minds. Now, I know I was joking earlier about the next level chess maneuvering uh, to put David Weiss somehow plant him <laughs> as uh, the U.S. attorney that Donald Trump was going to appoint to then later use David. It's like he's the Manchurian attorney or something. Uh, I I'm completely joking about that. But if I were one of those conspiracy types, but on the left, I would say this is kind of genius. Because now Merrick Garland has said, you know what, I, we're, we're listening to you, uh, Jim Jordan, 
Uh, we're listening to you, Matt Gates. We're listening to you, Kevin McCarthy, Marjorie Taylor Greene, blah, 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 blah. You guys have been talking about Hunter Biden. Your head's been spinning, uh, you know, off off your neck for, for two, three years now about Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden. Oh, my God, Hunter Biden. Okay, fine. Okay, great. So we're going to give you your special counsel. And all this evidence you guys keep running breathlessly to Fox News primetime to talk about having, present it. Must see it. Let's have it. Because here's the thing. If they don't actually have evidence, but they have all this speculatory hearsay, well, we talked to a guy who said he's got evidence. Um, n- n- now you've got a special counsel. Special counsel wants to see the evidence. Otherwise, you just need to shut the f*** up. If you don't have it, then shut the f*** up. So that's it. This this cuts off the Republican run to Fox News, OANN, you know, drivel. If it's not there, if there's no there there, then you got to just shut the f*** up and move on to something else. Because I, I kind of think, like, the American people are kind of tired of this stuff, too. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, on the left, hey, if Hunter Biden is guilty of something, by all means, charge him, fine him, jail him, whatever. He ain't on the ballot. I don't care. I really don't. And if we're going to sit here and talk about, well, you know, he was kind of peddling influence Okay, that may well be, but that doesn't mean he actually had influence to peddle. He just convinced people that he did. That's the assertion anyway. I mean, there's no proof that any of that influence paid off for anybody, right? Uh, it's not like Hunter Biden getting getting dead on a speakerphone for Burisma somehow made Vladimir Putin invade Ukraine, did it? No. I mean, well, I mean, that would be some next, next, next level chess. If I'm, I mean, crazy. But if we're going to talk about peddling influence, don't we have to talk about, again, the meetings that were held in Trump Tower where allegedly Donald wasn't there, but the kids were? Or how about all the money that Ivanka and Jared made with China or with Saudi Arabia? Or with Russia, I mean, is if peddling influence is the crime, uh, and, and don't get me wrong, I kind of believe that this should be a crime. Unfortunately, as we've learned with the Clarence Thomas and Justice Alito situation, there's very little on the books that says this is a crime. Because, and here's the dirty secret, y'all, those in power didn't want to enact the law to make it a crime because they like being able to peddle the influence or their family members to peddle the influence. That, that Republicans are just now suddenly aghast with disgust about it? <gasps> well, I can't believe the Biden family is guilty of the very same thing the Trump family has been guilty of. Or, I, I mean, we had an entire two-presidential uh, two term of a George... <laughs> W. Bush, who kind of had the soft route taken through his military career. Why? Because he had a dad who was pretty high up in Washington politics. This peddling thing's been going on for a long time. And I don't want to hear the, well, Donald Trump's the only real outsider. Really? Then talk to me about Jared and Ivanka. Let's talk about peddling influence. Let's see their laptops. Let's get their bank records. I mean, let's do this. Seriously, everybody, drop your pants. Get naked. <laughs> no, I mean, not not literally. I just mean like, let's let's see. If you want to see what, and Marjorie made sure we sure we got to see Hunter's goods. 
my um mad respect, bro. Uh then then fine. Let's see if let's what's everybody got? Let's see what you got. Drop trial. Let's see. I mean, not not literally, I mean figuratively. Let's let's just let's be transparent about what everybody's been doing as far as peddling influence goes. Uh I get a newsletter every day from the New York Times. I think I subscribe to the New York Times. I've yet to really use it that much, but uh, I get a newsletter from them every day and I'm going to read it to you because it makes a whole lot of sense from the left, from the right. It just kind of answers to both extremes and somewhere the truth, of course, falls in the middle. I'm going to read you that newsletter in its entirety next segment because I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it cools a lot of nerves and brings some temperatures down on both sides of the aisle. Again, somewhere in the middle is the truth and I'm all for finding it, but let's 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 be equal about this. Let's talk about peddling influence as it's affected government from both sides of the political spectrum instead of just doing the whole hyper-partisanship crap again. Back after this on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. It's The Ron Show. Welcome back to The Ron Show. Follow us at Ron Show ATL on all your social media. I have not done TikTok yet. Not for the show. I have a personal one, but I rarely use it. And do you really want to see me just doing funny stuff with my cats. I mean, maybe you do. I mean, that's fine. Whatever. Um, so yeah, yeah everything. Uh, Twitter and threads and Facebook and Instagram at Ron Show ATL. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I think I subscribe to the New York Times because they send me stuff uh, in the uh, in my email. And I'm thinking, do, that, do, I, do I pay for that? That's good content. Uh, so they, of course, let me know about the breaking news that we now have a special prosecutor for the Hunter Biden situation. Okay, good. I'm glad. No, no, I'm, I'm fantastic. I'm thrilled with this. Uh, they also sent uh, a, a newsletter. They do this every morning. It's called The Morning. And David Leonard wrote, I think, a fantastic piece. I, I don't know if he knew that the special prosecutor was coming, but this is going to lend to the conspiracy the right has. See, the New York Times, the liberal media, they knew this was coming. And David, is it Leonard? David Leonhardt, he set the table for that soft landing. Uh, the headline, good morning. We're covering Hunter Biden, the crisis on Maui, and an Appalachian reading guide. Um, kind of curious about the Appalachian reading guide. Oh, and Maui, my God, just awful. Uh, my friend or my, my friend and client, Justin's mother, Carolyn, lives there. I talked to her a couple of days ago. She's on the other side of the island and thankfully is safe. Uh, I've got a friend who works at a hotel chain in Maui as well. I need to check in on him. I think I saw him. He was among the first to post pictures of the devastation. Uh, so I know he's okay, but I should check in. Anyway, back to the newsletter uh, that came in today's uh, New York Times uh, morning email. Is it a scandal? The headline begins. The Hunter Biden case has become the latest example of America's dueling realities. So true. If you're a Republican there's a good chance you believe that Democrats and the mainstream media are deliberately minimizing a scandal that calls into question President Biden's honesty and threatens his presidency. I know some conservative readers at the morning feel this way because they've written to me to say so. If you're a Democrat, you'll likely believe that this so-called scandal is a transparent attempt to distract from Donald Trump's far worse behavior. I mean, it is far worse. Uh, Anyway, You may see the Hunter Biden obsession as the latest in a line of conservative conspiracy theories, joining Barack Obama's birthplace, John Kerry's Vietnam War record, and the suicide of Vince Foster. Oh, yeah, you got a Whitewater, Benghazi, I mean, her emails. Come on, the list is a lot longer. 
Today's newsletter is for both those readers who believe the case deserves more attention and those whose instinct is to skip any article about Hunter Biden. I hope to avoid committing the journalistic sin of false balance while explaining why the story deserves some attention from everybody. Again, this came in the uh, newsletter today called The Morning from the New York Times, written by David uh, Leonhardt. I think that's how you say his name. Cashing in. When top Democrats are asked about Hunter Biden, they tend to dismiss his problem as a private issue. Quoting, Hunter Biden is a private citizen, and this was a personal matter. That is Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary. That's what she said last month when asked about federal tax and gun charges against him. The president, the first lady, they love their son, and they support him as he continues to rebuild his life. That's admirable, right? This explanation is partially fair. Hunter Biden has struggled with drug addiction. His failure to pay taxes seems connected to the chaos of his life while he was using crack cocaine. And the gun charge stems from his claiming to be sober when he bought a handgun in 2018. And that's, really? We should make sure that that's more a thing, like sobriety and purchasing a handgun? Oh, where's the NRA when you need it, right? I'm being facetious. I like that idea. Okay, back to the newsletter. But it's a stretch for anyone to suggest that Hunter Biden is merely a private citizen. When his father was vice president from 2009 to 2017, Hunter tried to create the impression that he could leverage his family connections to help his clients, as a former business partner has testified to Congress. Some clients believed it. Burisma, a Ukrainian energy company, put Hunter on its board in an attempt to signal that it was pro-Western. A Chinese tycoon also signed a partnership with him. All told, Hunter made more than $800,000 in 2013 and more than $1.1 million in 2014. David Leonhardt writes, My colleague, Luke Broadwater, who covers Congress, told me that he initially found the public discussion of Hunter Biden to be uninteresting. Typical partisan noise. But Luke came to believe the story was more important. Many rich and famous people try to cash in on their family name, including relatives of politicians, Luke said. It's certainly worth newspaper coverage. Luke notes that Joe Biden made a false statement during a 2020 campaign debate when he claimed, my son has not made money in China. The only guy who made money from China is this guy. Biden continued referring to Donald Trump. Amazingly, Biden was correct about the Trump part. The Trumps received money from the same Chinese company. These details are not pretty. The current president's son made substantial sums of money from the perception of his proximity to top government officials, and the president has claimed otherwise. That story is notably different from past Republican lies about Obama's birthplace or Kerry's war record. Unsupported claims. The problem for Joe Biden's Republican critics is that they are making their own untruthful statements, or at least statements lacking any support. House Republicans have claimed that the elder Biden himself received money as part of Hunter's business dealings. They have produced no evidence to support the claim, Luke notes. There's also no evidence that Joe Biden altered policy to benefit Hunter's clients. Sometimes the Republican claims have turned farcical. House Republicans portrayed Gal Luft, a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen, as a truth teller who would expose the Bidens. Luft has not done so. Instead, a grand jury indicted him last month for acting as an unregistered agent of the Chinese government and helping Iran evade sanctions. Luft denies any wrongdoing. For anybody who wants to dig deeper into this Hunter Biden saga, David Leonhard writes, I recommend this detailed article, I'll share it in the show notes, by my colleagues Adam Antus, Michael Schmidt, and Katie Benner. Here's the key sentence. The real Hunter Biden story is complex and very different in important ways from the narrative promoted by Republicans, but troubling in its own way. As Michael said to me, David Leonhard writes, 
Should the vice president's son be selling the perception of access to his father, even if that son isn't delivering anything for that money? Jonathan Chait of New York Magazine has compared Hunter Biden to the Supreme Court justices who have accepted large gifts from private citizens. In American politics, the worst abuses by powerful people usually involve clever ways to exploit the law without committing crimes, Chait wrote. Yes, Trump and his family have profited much more from their government service than Hunter Biden has. But that isn't a fully satisfying explanation to many Americans. Perhaps, Chait argues, it's time for stricter ethics rules for the highest officials and their closest relatives. Chait writing in New York Magazine, it's unsavory, but it's not a crime, is a good argument for a defense lawyer. It's not a great argument for people who are in a position to write new laws and whose survival depends on refuting the cynicism of a pseudo-populist whose appeal is rooted in the corrosive assumption that every politician is on the take. Especially when that pseudo-populist is himself doing the same damn thing. I mean, that's why he ran for office, right? Ooh, that looks appealing. <laughs> Back after this on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This, this is The Ron Show on America One Radio. So I haven't talked a whole lot about the latest shooter drop in the Clarence Thomas saga. ProPublica has been on him like white on rice. And uh, not to be outdone, the New York Times has thrown their hat in the ring. Uh, this dropped six days ago. The headline, Clarence Thomas, $267,230 RV. Wow, that is not a cheap RV. I mean... Yeah, they're usually six figures, or can be six figures, but two, like a quarter million dollar RV and the friend who financed it. The vehicle is a key part of the Justice's Just Folks persona. It's also a luxury motor coach that was funded by someone else's money. Uh, accompanied by a photo with Clarence in front of it in the year 2000 with his great nephew and his prevost Lim Mirage XL Marathon Motor Coach. Joe Becker, Julie Tate writing, Justice Clarence Thomas met the recreational vehicle of his dreams in Phoenix on a November Friday in 1999. With some time to kill before an event that night, he headed to a dealership just west of the airport. There sat a used Prevost Lim Mirage XL Marathon, eight years old and 40 feet long with orange flames licking down the sides. In the words of one of his biographers, he kicked the tires and climbed aboard then quickly negotiated a handshake deal. A few weeks later, Justice Thomas drove his new motor coach off the lot and into his every man up by the bootstraps self-mythology. There he is behind the wheel during a rare 2007 interview with 60 Minutes talking about how the steel-clad converted bus allows him to escape the, quote, meanness that you see in Washington. He regularly slips into his speeches his love of driving it through the American heartland. The part we fly over, he says. And in a documentary financed by conservative admirers, <laughs> Justice Thomas, who was born into poverty in Georgia, waxes rhapsodic about the familiarity of spending time with the regular folks he meets along the way in RV parks and Walmart parking lots. I don't have any problem with going to Europe, but I prefer the United States, and I prefer seeing the regular parts of the United States, he told the filmmakers, adding, there's something normal to me about it. I come from regular stock, and I prefer being around that. But there's an untold and far more complex backstory to Justice Thomas RV, the story continues, one that not only undercuts the mythology, but also leaves unanswered a host of questions about whether the justice received and failed to disclose, that seems to be a running theme, a lavish gift 
from a wealthy friend or, you know, an everyman that you would find in an RV park, right? Who would gift you a quarter million dollar RV? The article continues, his Prevost Marathon cost $267,230, according to title history records obtained by the New York Times. And Justice Thomas, who in the ensuing years would tell friends how he had scrimped and saved to afford the motor coach, did not buy it on his own. In fact, the purchase was underwritten, at least in part, by Anthony Welters, a close friend who made his fortune in the healthcare industry. He provided Justice Thomas with financing that experts said a bank would have been unlikely to extend, not only because Thomas was already carrying a lot of debt, but because the Marathon brand's high level of customization makes its used motor coaches difficult to value. In an email to the Times, Mr. Welters wrote, Here's what I can share. 25 years ago, I loaned a friend money as I have other friends and family. Nothing unusual about that, though, right, y'all? Just a Supreme Court justice who needed a quarter million dollars, and I loaned it to him. No strings attached, of course. Let me get back to his quote. We've all been on one side or the other of that equation. I can tell you I have never been on one side or the other of a friendly equation where $267,000 was on the line, okay? And trust me when I tell you, if somebody were ever to offer me that money, saying, hey, Ron, you want to take your show national, international? Let me give you this amount of money as seed money. You, you, don't, you, think, you think somebody's going to loan me that money with no strings attached whatsoever, not to mention whatever I need to sort of slip into the conversation that benefits them? Now, imagine I were a Supreme Court justice and a billionaire with ties to the healthcare industry were coming to me and said, um, hey, I'm going to give you this, this quarter million dollar RV. I'm going to help you buy it anyway. Here's a quarter million dollars. You can just pay me back whenever or, you know, take your own time. Just, you know, however you feel like paying me back. And then the Affordable Care Act comes up for debate before you and my business is not going to do well if the ACA stays intact. That's where we are, folks. Anyway, uh, uh, Welters continued saying uh, he used it to buy a recreational vehicle, which is a passion of his. Roughly nine years later, the loan was satisfied, Mr. Welters added. He subsequently sent the New York Times a photograph of the original title bearing his signature and a handwritten lean release date of November 22, 2008. The article continues, but despite repeated requests over nearly two weeks, Mr. Welters did not answer further questions essential to understanding his arrangement with Justice Thomas. He would not say how much he had lent Justice Thomas, how much the justice had repaid, and whether any of the debt had been forgiven or otherwise discharged. He declined to provide the Times with a copy of a loan agreement or even say if one existed. Nor would he share the basic terms of the loan, such as what, if any interest rate had been charged, or whether Justice Thomas had adhered to an agreed-upon repayment schedule. And when asked to elaborate on what he had meant when he said the loan had been, quote, satisfied, he did not respond. The article continues. Satisfied doesn't necessarily mean someone paid the loan back, said Michael Hammersley, a tax lawyer and expert who has testified before Congress. Satisfied could also mean the lender formally forgave the debt or otherwise just stopped pursuing repayment. Justice Thomas, for his part, did not respond to detailed questions about the loan sent to him through the Supreme Court's spokeswoman. The article continues, the two men's silence serves to obscure whether Justice Thomas had an obligation to report the arrangement under a federal ethics law that requires justices to disclose certain gifts, liabilities, and other financial dealings that could pose conflicts of interests. Remember now, all of this is coming out while Hunter Biden's peddling of perceived influence is also something 
the right is just grasping onto. Got to root out corruption, they say, while saying nothing about Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito. Nothing. Not a damn thing. And if that's not enough, and by the way, it's more than enough. Remember Clarence Thomas in his uh, little documentary, the little uh, fan fiction that uh, his conservative friends did the little documentary about him, and he's talking about, oh, I prefer driving an RV and hanging out with the regular folk. It reminds me of that episode of uh, Frasier. Oh, I love Frasier. Miss that sitcom. Kelsey Grammer, noted conservative. Don't care. Love the show. See, I can do that. Um, anyway, his dad, Martin, used to take the boys, Martin and, um, I'm sorry, Frazier and uh, Niles, through all these little RV trips when they were kids. And it was more a Martin thing than the boys. You know, the boys were kind of stuffy, snooty kids, more like their mom. And Martin's a man of the people, you know? He liked going to, like, little side cafes off the Route 66, stuff like that. Just very Americana, right? And then they did the RV trip and stopped at the place. And Niles hopped in an RV that looked just like his dad's, but it wasn't his dad's. Uh, fell asleep in the back of it, and an older couple got... Anyway, I don't know. It just reminds me of, of that, because this is the dissonance we're talking about. Clarence Thomas is way more Fraser and Niles than he is Martin Crane. But boy, he loved to tell you about, I just like hanging out with the regular folk, and I like seeing America. I, I like traveling here, but I like seeing America. Well, let's go to the ProPublica piece. Headline, Clarence Thomas, 38 Vacations. The other billionaires who have treated the Supreme Court justice to luxury travel. The story starts during his three decades on the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas has enjoyed steady access to a lifestyle most Americans can only imagine. And we ain't talking RV parks and plugging up the dump station, you know what I mean? A cadre of industry titans and ultra-wealthy executives have treated him far-flung vacations aboard their yachts, ushered him into premium suites at sporting events, and sent their private jets to fetch him, including, on more than one occasion, an entire 737. It's a stream of luxury that is both more extensive and from a wider circle than has been previously understood. Remember, we had the one billionaire, Harlan Crow in Texas, Maybe it's more than one. Does this make Clarence Thomas something of an influence whore? Did I say that? Back to the article. Like clockwork, Thomas, leisure activities have been underwritten by benefactors who share the ideology that drives his jurisprudence. (laughs) Their gifts include at least 38 destination vacations, including a previously unreported voyage on a yacht around the Bahamas. That is not an RV park. 26 private jet flights, plus an additional eight by helicopter. A dozen VIP passes to professional and college sporting events, typically perched in the skybox. Two stays at luxury resorts in Florida. Not an RV park. They have RV parks, but he didn't stay at an RV park in Florida this time. Oh, in Jamaica. Don't think you can get there by recreational vehicle. And one standing invitation to an uber-exclusive golf club overlooking the Atlantic coast. I wonder if you can drive your RV Onto that facility. Back to ProPublica. This accounting of Thomas Travel revealed for the first time here from an array of previously unavailable information is the fullest to date of the generosity that is regularly afforded Thomas lifestyle far beyond what his income could provide. And it is almost certainly an undercount. 
can I just say something, y'all? And and this is a admission on my part. I think if 38 trips had been given to me by many billionaires, I think if someone gave me a quarter million dollar RV, I think if someone paid off, bought my parents' home, fixed it up for them, let them live in it rent free, to you know eventually just pay it. I I you know what I I could probably be doing a radio show speaking of conservative values. I mean, why wouldn't I, right? Why wouldn't I? We can all be influenced. We can all be influenced. We can sleep at night because we sleep in luxury. We can know we're lying our asses off, but we're doing so in a damn nice bed with the finest linens in the nicest neighborhoods, safe from reality. But you're going to tell me that that's not how Clarence Thomas is? Like, He's a man of the people. He likes to hang out with the regular folk, except when he doesn't. Never mind that Harlan Crow owned businesses that benefited from conservative policy decisions made by the bench. Never mind the Welters guy who bought him the quarter million dollar, used quarter million dollar, that's how damn nice it is. A used quarter million dollar are, is your house worth $267,000? Think about that. Somebody bought you a house. Do you not feel like you owe them something that you're obligated in some way? Yeah, he owned a health, he was in the healthcare business. He was in the healthcare field. Has anything come up before the Supreme Court involving healthcare since Clarence Thomas was seated on the bench? Well, of course. Of course. Actually, you know what? I I think I have to vouch for myself because I just remembered there was one time, I think I was still in high school or maybe it was the year after I graduated high school, the summer of 92, I guess. I was contacted to essentially write a eight page, I want to say maybe newsletter. It, It was going to look like a newspaper. You ever get one of those things in the mail? It looks like a newspaper and it's nothing but puff pieces about product or products. It basically just it's a it's a puff piece. It's a it's a it's a merch rag, right? Well, um I had been contacted by uh I remember his last name is Beckham. Bob Beckham. That's who it was. Columbia County. One of the uh, early nineties, late eighties, early nineties influence peddlers back in the day. Conservative to write uh, a, a, a fake newspaper of articles touting the candidates running for, I want to say, local or county offices. There may have been there may have been some senates or you know some state senate. Yeah, it was local offices and state senate seats and state house seats. All this. Anyway, it was it was supposed to look like a real newspaper, but it wasn't going to be a real newspaper. Here's the problem. I was uh, editor of the high school newspaper. I also wrote for the Augusta Chronicle and the Columbia County News Times at the time, I believe. And so I, I wasn't a journalist because I didn't have a journalism degree, obviously, since I was still in high school. But I did understand the, the core tenets of journalism. So when I, when I put this, uh, this, this newspaper to, together, these articles together for Bob to review... Uh, let's just say they didn't really meet what he was looking for. He was looking for me to just fluff up these candidates and 
create these opinion pieces that were promoting the candidate solely on their accolades, on their merits. And I wasn't wired for it. I didn't, I mean, I designed the thing, I laid it out, and some of the articles that I wrote might have been, but they were very much Frankenstein because I didn't know what the hell I was doing or didn't quite get what I was being wink, wink, paid for. It was good money back then. I was saying it was like $1,000 for this thing together. Back in the 1990s, when you're a 16, 17-year-old kid, that's a lot of money. So maybe I can't be influenced. If I can't be influenced by $1,000 at the age of 16 or 17, then maybe I can't be influenced by a quarter million dollar RV either. But I digress. I happen to think, for the record, that Clarence Thomas not only can, but has been. And yet, while we're sitting here grousing about whether or not Hunter Biden's perceived peddling of influence is something that has his father in hot water, the right ain't saying about Clarence Thomas and the well-documented perception of peddling influence now coming forward, continuing to come forward. Back after this. Final segment of the Ron Show for the week. Uh, a note in today's The Jolt column at theajc.com. A teacher who faces termination after reading a book to fifth graders about gender identity Kind of wasn't really, but it, whatever. Anyway, testified before the Cobb County Board of Education that uh, continuing today, a witness called the school called by the school district said Katie Rinderly violated rules about introducing controversial topics in the classroom. The AJC's Cassidy Alexander writes, but Rinderly and her attorney highlighted potential gray areas in the rules and echoed criticism of Georgia's laws prohibiting teachers from raising touchy subjects. I don't know what's so touchy about a, a kid just embracing their uniqueness, but whatever. Hey, let's do this first. There's a video that the Southern Poverty Law Center put together that kind of biographies Katie Rinderly, and she gets to tell her side of the story, how this all played out. What originally drew me to teaching was my passion for helping others, but also my own love of learning. I love that every student brings you know, a diverse set of skills and knowledge and background to my classroom, and I love learning from them as well. My name is Katie Renderly, and I'm an elementary teacher in Cobb County, Georgia. On February 13th, I made a picture books. I had a selection of an elementary teacher in Cobb County, Georgia. On February 13th, I went to the book fair, and as usual, I walked around the book fair to see, you know, the display of picture books. I had a selection of them and I stumbled upon My Shadow is Purple and I thought, that looks like a great book. So I stood there in the middle of the book fair and I read the book and, you know, it spoke to me and I was like, I have to get this book. And so I bought the book. I had a bin of picture books, had about nine titles, spread them across the front of my room on a display, sat them upright, showed the beautiful covers of them all. And I gave students a minute to just kind of decide which ones they wanted to read. They chose My Shadow is Purple. So I sat down and I read My Shadow is Purple. And, you know, students just engaged in the book with me. And then we discussed, you know, the message that they received. That's what our conversation really was focusing on, is the power of not only embracing your unique differences and abilities, but then valuing those in others and learning from those. That was on a Wednesday and on by Friday morning I received an email from a parent and our, my principal came into the room asking me to see the book. Uh, she walked into my room and asked if she could see the book My Shadow is Purple. 
And I remember, I said, oh, absolutely, it's a great book. So I went and got the book and I handed it to her and she took it and left. A little bit later, a few hours later, I had planning period and I received an email from my principal to come to her office to discuss the book. And through that discussion during my planning time is when I was made aware that a parent had a complaint. This is about a picture book that is celebrating and validating, you know, the beautiful differences in students. Um, the parent named that I was different from them and then brought in political motivations, which, you know, is never part of education to be, or should not be a part of education. And all of a sudden, I saw myself on the outside with my administration and the parents on the other side. I was isolated from my school community and also from my coworkers. I had only heard the story or the narrative that the community was revolting against me and that I was not wanted back at my school and that the community, I did not align with the community's viewpoints and beliefs. And, you know, that was devastating to me. I did have some parents reach out to me um, asking if I was okay and sharing concerns. When the entire investigation was over, I did speak to some parents who showed a tremendous amount of support and love and validation. Um, I had only heard the opposing side of that. One day I was out at the Meredith Square and I ran into a student and it had the look of just pure joy overwhelmed me. I mean, she was emotional, I was emotional, and I had a very similar experience with one of my other students. You know, he, he sobbed on my arm for a few minutes and you know, it took me back, you know, that this didn't just impact me. I wanted to fight this case because students deserve to be at the center of what they're learning. Students deserve to be validated. They deserve to be celebrated. Um, they should not be censored. The uh, National Education Association, NEA, that is a teacher's union, uh, put out an article that shared some of the experiences that the students would after reading a story, contribute some thoughts of their own. An article from the Southern Poverty Law Center quotes some of the poems that the students wrote after listening to My Shadow is Purple. One child wrote, My Shadow is White. An underestimated thing. When mixed with colors, it can do amazing things, but left by itself, it's kind of bland. I just sort of marvel at <laughs> conservatives who claim to want to keep children's minds innocent and pure, and yet they're the ones actually doing the thinking about sex and gender when fifth graders are just fifth graders. I'm trying to think, when I was in fifth grade, I think the thing that I was sweating the most was whether or not I was going to be able to win the county spelling bee. I finished in second, by the way. I don't remember the word that tripped me up, but I finished in second in the county that year. Hell yeah. And yes, I am a little bit of a spelling Nazi. Oh, I can't stand when people misspell words that are just in the there, 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 your, your, your thing. Oh, that drives me nuts. That being said, that teacher just sounds like a warm, loving teacher, and her students miss her. I'm kind of heartbroken. I'm really hoping against all hope that the Cobb County Board of Education will do the right thing and go, this is stupid. Put her back in the classroom. We should be grateful someone like Katie Rindley wants to teach our kids. And put up with all this bullshit that's coming from some parent, who, by the way, is also a school board employee, is throwing at her. 
That's going to do it for The Ron Show. Have yourselves a great weekend. Back here Monday, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you're podcasting this from. I appreciate that. Plenty more for you to check out at ronshowatl.com or at ronshowatl on social media. Have a great weekend.